All right, let's go with this. We're going to pick this movie apart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. music to Logan's Run, released in 1976 by MGM. And I'm Matt Johnson, recording from the Seattle area, where we're having, one day we're having summer weather with 85 degrees, and the next day we're having winter weather with uh, 42 degrees, so uh, typical spring. And I'm Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where we're having lots of sun. Um, you can find us on iTunes at Classic Movie Reviews. And you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net. And you can listen to all of our episodes there and get an episode listing. And you can also find us on Facebook. Just do a search for Classic Movie Reviews. And we've got uh, some comments on there. And Again, thank you to everybody who has left comments. This is, what, our 39th or 40th episode now? Yeah, I was a little confused last week. I said it was our 38th episode, but it, it was actually our 39th, and so this is our 40th. They're fun to do. Uh, I had not seen Logan's Run since it came out in the theaters in 1976. Actually, I think I saw it in 1977. I enjoyed the movie. Uh, the... Uh, studio was metro Goldwyn mayer and i haven't read everything that i should about mgm but they were experiencing a lot of financial difficulties in the 60s and 70s and uh made fewer movies and uh from what i've read they as a studio were a difficult uh, organization to work with because they were really watching every dollar because they were having difficulty the uh, <clears throat> the director of the movie, Michael Anderson, uh, directed a favorite movie of mine called The Dam Busters from 1955, a really good uh, movie about uh, an effort by the Allies during World War II to bomb and ruin a bunch of dams in, uh, in uh, France and Germany. And he also directed a big, big budget movie around the world in 80 days in 1955, plus many more movies. So um, that's my update on that. The story reminds me of a book that I really like, written by Arthur C. Clarke, called The City and the Stars, and that was published in 1956. And I'll put a link to a synopsis of that in our show notes. But uh, here's a little summary of that story. The City and the Stars takes place one billion years in the future in the city of Diaspar. By this time, the Earth is so old that the oceans have gone and humanity has all but left. As far as the people of Diaspar know, they are the only city left on the planet. The city of Diaspar is completely enclosed. Nobody has come in or left the city for as long as anybody can remember, and everybody in Diaspar has an instinctive insular conservatism. This, uh, so it's, it's a pretty interesting 
parallel between that and and this movie in some ways. It really is. The 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 one difference that I pick up is that in Logan's Run, the Earth had uh, healed itself and was coming back. There were a lot. Of, it was a very some very beautiful places that they uh, passed through as they were running. Yeah, it was weird because uh, you had mentioned in your email to me that it almost felt like two different movies, or or maybe two different people had directed it, because the second half of the movie where they are outside is really well done, and there's some spectacular special effects, and in fact, the special effects of the ruined Washington, D.C. won an Academy Award, and the person that did some of those effects also did the effects in Fantastic Voyage, so another link back to uh, to that movie. They are uh, really well done, and uh, you're right, I did almost see two different movies here, part one and part two. <clears throat> the um, the budget for this movie was quite large for 1976, $9 million. And its box office was $25 million, And it's earned more since then, of course. And uh, just a quick overview of the lead cast. Michael York uh, as Logan 5. I remember him most recently in Austin Powers. And then uh, I believe it's Jenny uh, Aguder is now on the PBS program called The Midwives. Peter Ustinoff, as the old man, was wonderful. Quite an author. and man, He was in so many movies, I lost track. But two of my favorites that he uh, played in, Topkapi from 1964, and Death on the Nile as Hercule Perot in 1978. Quite, quite something. He was really, really excellent, I thought. Well, he was, he was for sure, I think, my favorite part of the movie. And he did a really good job of kind of portraying this crazy old guy that had been living alone for who knows how many decades, but a long time. There's a great scene where he uh, talks about the naming of the cats. and <laughs> but Which, by the way, he had given three names to each cat. He was very clear on that. Are you alone here? Oh, hardly. <laughs> Got all these cats. Is is that what they're called? Cats? Yeah, and they've each got their own name. Cats, of course. What else would they be called? <laughs> cats. You know they've each got three names. Yes. The naming of cats is a difficult matter. It's not just one of your holiday games. You may think at first I'm mad as a hatter when I tell you that each cat. Got three different names. See, they got the ordinary name, and then they got their fancy name. And that makes two names, doesn't it? Well, now it's got a third name. Can either of you two guess what that third name is? Come on! <laughs> Above and beyond, there's one name that's left over, and this is the name you never will guess. It's a name no human research can discover, but the cat itself knows and never will confess, will you, Henry? <laughs> uh, that apparently was quoted from a T.S. Eliot poem, and they had a little uh, acknowledgement in the credits at the end to say that they used that by, uh, with permission. But yeah, those are great. 
the uh, music was was done by Jerry Goldsmith, who did uh, so many movies. He did Planet of the Apes, the movie that we've reviewed a couple of episodes ago. And uh, another favorite movie of mine, Seven Days in May in, from 1964. It's about an attempted coup d'etat of our government led by uh, the general played by Burt Lancaster. But he's, he's, Jerry Goldsmith has done dozens of movie scores. Really excellent. They uh, talked about the music quite a bit in the behind-the-scenes video that I watched on the Blu-ray. And they had two different themes. They had the theme of inside the city which was uh mostly electronic music with a few string and percussion instruments thrown in sparse kind of electronic sound to it. Then the outdoor music, which was a full orchestra. contrast the difference between the beautiful scenery on the outside of the city <clears throat> and the the cold you know harsh kind of technology of the of the city on the inside i see the movie in two parts inside the dome city and then when they're out and for my love of music in movies i'm wondering if my, my uh, view of the two parts isn't influenced by the music because it is so different in part one and part two. The, the, the first half of the movie is not terrible. Uh, when I first watched it, I thought it kind of felt like a TV movie, like a made-for-TV movie. I think what really brings it down for me are those model shots. Yeah. They're just kind of terrible. And, you know, if you contrast this with uh, Star Wars that came out the, uh, the year after, you have to think that they had the, the skill and the technology to do some pretty great 
model and miniature work. I almost wish that they hadn't showed as much of the city and, and maybe just left it more like with the matte paintings. I agree with you. It detracted a lot for, for me. The, the models look like something that somebody had built in their garage almost. And, and they were big. I mean, the, the some of the buildings were four feet tall and they really wanted to make them big enough so that they could have those little cars running through the plastic tubes. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the water, that's the part that really makes it fall down. The, something on that scale would have small ripples in the water. Right. But, I don't know, maybe some bad decision-making there, or uh, I'm not quite sure what happened. That, that scene in the carousel was pretty cool. Oh, where they're flying up in their circle? Yeah. You mentioned in one of your notes to me that you could see the wires as they were going up into the air in that scene. You know, and I watched it again, and it may be that I'm watching it on a smaller screen. I, I, I still miss that. There's just one shot where they've got a bunch of the people flying around, and I noticed I could see the wires, and then some of the other scenes I couldn't. Uh, but they actually constructed a full-size rig to pull up all of those people and have them flying around. Wow. That was a pretty big undertaking. And they built a lot of those sets uh, in a in a sound stage. And then some of the scenes were filmed in a shopping mall. I, I, the credits that I was reading, uh, it was a mall in, I think, Dallas, Fort Worth, or somewhere in Texas. So do you want to talk about the some of the plot elements here? Let me get started and then jump in. As we, uh, as we find our, our young people, they... Uh, they live in a, seal, a sealed dome city, and they have a life clock that that is given to them at birth. And at the age of thirty, their life ends, and they go to what's called the carousel, where they're led to believe that as they go to the carousel, they will be renewed and come back. Everybody believes that because that's really all they know. Everything in the city is is automated. Everything is run by machines. There's very little that the uh, inhabitants do, and they're kind of uh, just partying all the time and, and having a great time that way until they reach 30, and then zap, that's it. And then some of the young people want to escape, so they're called runners, and they are searched for and uh, killed by sheriffs or officers which are called sandmen of which uh, michael york and richard jordan are two uh lead characters are, are both sandmen and they seem at the first part of the movie to really enjoy their work as they chase down runners in this uh city slash shopping mall the sandmen have to go and debrief with the central computer after they've killed one of the runners. So Francis, who's played by Richard Jordan, goes in and does his debrief, and it's not, not a big deal. He just kind of checks in. And then Logan comes in, and all the possessions that he's found on, the, on this table, things don't go quite the way they normally go for Logan because the computer starts asking him a bunch of questions. Logan 5, do you identify this object? Negative. Question, what is it? That is the name of the object, Ankh. Do you identify this word, sanctuary? Negative. 
Sanctuary is a pre-catastrophe code word used for a place of immunity. I don't understand. The object Ankh has been identified with the code word Sanctuary. The object and the word both relate to runners who have not been accounted for. Question. Hold. Unaccounted runners 1056. You may state to your question. 1056 unaccounted for? The number is correct. That's impossible. Question. Maybe they weren't all runners. Maybe most of them reached life renewal on carousel. Question. Nobody reached renewal? But everybody believes that, that some... The question has been answered, Logan 5. You mean nobody's ever been renewed? The question has been answered. Ends up that the computer wants Logan to basically go undercover as a runner and try to find what's called sanctuary, which is where the, these runners that escape are supposedly all headed towards. Logan says... No question. Uh, what if I need help from another Sandman? Negative. You will begin assignment by becoming a runner seeking sanctuary. Question. Uh, I'm only red six now. Well, how can I pretend that I'm approaching last day? And the computer says... Uh, Identify. And Logan puts his hand on this apparatus and... crystal red and start and it flashes red life clock. question my life clock retrogram complete proceed zero three three zero three but but am i still red six I had four more years. I will get them back, won't I? You will take the object Ankh with you for identification. Question. Do I get my four years back? Which totally freaks him out. And, you know, I, I really like that scene in the central computer room because up until that point, Logan is just this happy-go-lucky kind of carefree. He totally buys into everything about the city. Uh, he, he has a few questions about like where people come from and the birth mothers and, and, and things, but he's, he's pretty bought into it. And then as he's talking to the computer, he realizes that there is no sort of resurrection from the carousel, that just basically those people are killed. <laughs> Within the space of three minutes, 
he, his whole world comes crashing down around him. It really does. His life changes. He's going to uh, be put in carousel. Yeah, it really, uh, it really does change him. Uh, we we kind of skipped over uh, Jessica. Uh, and Jessica is another main character. And Jessica is feeling pretty depressed because one of her best friends just went to carousel. And she's not at all really bought into the idea of carousel and, and being reborn. And she happens to put herself into what's called the circuit, which is like this teleporting device, which is, it's like a match.com type of thing where <laughs> you actually show up, you actually show up and, and, uh, there's a great line when she shows up in Logan's apartment. What's wrong? Hmm? Oh, uh, do you prefer women? No. <laughs> well? Nothing. I, I felt sad. I put myself on the circuit. It was a mistake. Sad? What do you feel sad about? A friend of mine went on carousel. Now he's gone. Yes, well, I'm, I'm sure he was renewed. He was killed, like the others. Killed? Why do, you, why do you use that word? Isn't that what you do? Kill? I've never killed anyone in my life. Sandman terminate runners. What's your name? Jessica. Well, sad or not, you're beautiful. Let's have sex. <laughs> yeah, what, what a line. Wow. She had an onk around her neck, and so there's some kind of connection there with uh, Sanctuary. I just wanted to backtrack for a minute. I did like the special effects where uh, the Sandman terminated a runner, and then the runner just dissolves and disappears completely. It was on the floor of the uh, Great Hall, and it just is gone. There's no remnant at all. And then I was curious about the cathedral and the symbolism of that and those people, that the younger people that were hiding out in there. Logan finds Jessica again and starts asking her about Sanctuary and tells her that, you know, my life clock is out. I, I, I want to run. And she doesn't really believe him at first, but uh, they end up going to this place called Cathedral together. Are the cops really as wild as they say? You've never been there, have you? No, of course not. Well, you wanted to come with me. You'll find out. Oh, they're wild, all right. They're the violent ones. There's no place else for them unless they change. Some people say it's because they're born in breeders. Had you heard that? We're all born in breeders. But most of us don't end up running wild in cathedrals. No, but they say human mothering might be better. I wish I'd known my mother. <laughs> Why do you get these crazy ideas? But I, I thought it was interesting that they called it cathedral. I haven't quite deciphered what that is, but uh, yeah, that was carefully chosen, I'm sure. And so there's this confrontation with these like wild uh, cubs, they're called, in cathedral. And that was really reminiscent of me, uh, of the movie Escape from New York. And the way sets are used and reused, the, the, the sets might have been used in Escape from New York. You never know. There was some great music in that scene with uh, Cathedral. 
Terminated at 016. Ready for cleanup, Cathedral Quadrant 39. Too, because when France, Francis is following Logan and Jessica, and he's kind of wondering what Logan is doing, because he's not acting normally. And, and Francis ends up seeing that Logan has let this runner escape. At that point, Francis realizes that Logan is also trying to run. Francis terminates that runner that Logan let. And that, for me, this is kind of where the movie shifts from part one to part two, because now Logan 5 and Jessica 6 are trying to run and escape the Dome City, and there's a great pursuit scenes through some very elaborate uh, plants. I think they were filmed in a, either a water treatment or a sewage treatment plant somewhere, either in Texas or here in California, but... It starts on a whole new journey for everyone. Yeah, so after Cathedral, they go to this place where they can get a face job. Oh, right, uh, yes. It's a weird orgy scene where they have to go through this, uh, like, discotheque. And it reminded me of the Greek myth, Calypso, and how Odysseus in that, in that uh, myth is a prisoner for seven years there because he's kind of entranced by Calypso. It's interesting that they had to go through that place as sort of the last test, uh, because it was pretty clear that they almost didn't make it through because of the drugs that were in the air and, and everybody's having sex and it. Right. There's all these flashing lights, and so that was kind of the last gateway to getting out of the city. Then they, that's when they move to to the uh, under under city part of the dome city with all the pipes and water and all kinds of things. That was pretty cool. It was it was well done. There's a funny scene at about 58 minutes into the movie where there's a, a Wilhelm scream. Ah! Plus there's a guy running around in the background with his pants, his butt on fire. Yeah, yes, gotta hurt. So the Wilhelm scream is a famous sort of gag sound effect that's been in movies for a long time. It started, I think, in 1954 with a character named Wilhelm in a movie called The Charge at Feather River. Wilhelm! Yeah, I'll just fill my pipe. And that scream shows up in tons and tons of movies, especially a lot of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas movies. It's in all the Star Wars movies. And I'll put a link to a YouTube video that shows all these examples of it. But that was a that was a really kind of funny scene for me. <laughs> uh, it sort of broke the tension. Uh... I was I was surprised by the guy running with being on fire. Wow! And then and then we, and then we start to get to the outside world. But first, they have to talk to this really weird robot called uh, Box. That whole part of the movie where they're in that ice chamber and Box is there, uh, and those people are frozen, and it, that that was just odd to me. I never I never really connected it to anything before. Or after. It was just sort of like 20 minutes of, let's put this in because we built these sets. I, 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 may, maybe you can help me with that one. I, I, I just never can connect it in my head to the, to the main plot and theme of the movie. I, for me, what it, what it showed was that none of the runners ever actually made it past that point. So they all got caught by Box and frozen because Box, he says that... How did they get there? Regular storage procedure. The same as the other food. 
The other food stopped coming, and they started. What other food? Fish, and plankton, and sea greens, and protein from the sea. It's all here, ready, fresh as harvest day. Fish, and plankton, sea greens, and protein from the sea. And then it stopped coming, and they came instead. So I store them here. I'm ready, and you're ready. It's my job to freeze you. I think Logan was the only one that ever had a gun with him. So he was able to actually kill Box and get away. But I think all those other people were the other 1,056 runners that were unaccounted for. Oh, okay. Here's the, my thinking on it is they have Sandmen that are killing runners so they can't escape. But then when the runners get to the frozen area, they all die anyway. So I couldn't figure out who had made Box, who had put him there. And if he was so effective, why did they need Sandmen to chase the runners? So Box was left over from when the city was first built. And there, all the food for, for the city used to come from those fish tanks and, and the ocean, because the city is next to the ocean. And I think Box just kind of existed for hundreds of years kind of down there in the frozen chamber with his only purpose being to freeze you know food that would then be used in the city later but since something happened where the food stopped coming that way he then just started freezing the people that came through so i think he was a oh okay previous technology once you know when the city was first built kind of an artifact from hundreds of years earlier oh that makes sense so thank you that clears it up for me because i plus i couldn't get past what he looked like <laughs> when you think about star wars and the way that they did the droids and that i thought that they, if they had just found somebody kind of a big uh, man and put one of those masks on him from the carousel and and like a black cloak or something and just made him look ominous and, and make him move more like a robot that it would have been a hundred times more effective but he it would have they could have used robbie the robot from forbidden planet which was also made by mgm 10 plus years earlier he could have worked or the james arness character from the thing yes. remember how scary he was and they didn't do much makeup at all it was very it was very uh distracting so anyway, they make it out of the Dome City, right? Am I back on track here? On a track through the the Earth in its natural state almost, you know? It, it sort of looked to me like it was a combination of hiking in Colorado, and then they were also along the ocean. Yeah. Washington, D.C. So the climate quite a bit because it was a lot more like a desert climate in a lot of those scenes. I thought this part of the special effects were really well done with the uh, decaying Washington, D.C. when they go up to the Lincoln Memorial and uh, Lincoln is draped in all this vinery. And I, I just, I really enjoyed that part of the movie. It looked like that uh, television cable show that's on now. I think it's called After Earth or something like yeah, that. Where it shows what happens in a very short number of years to things. This was my favorite part of the movie, that journey from after the ice cave to the part where they find the old man. And then Peter Ustinov thankfully shows up. Man, he was, 
I could have watched him even more. He just played that part so well. It just, it's hard for me to describe. He, he's kind of like lost some of his memory, but he has memories of his mother and dad. He shows the graves. He's got these cats running all over the Senate chambers of the Capitol. <laughs> and to me, it looked like he had been living there his entire life. He'd been living there for a long time because he makes a comment as he's uh, as they're leaving the Senate chambers to go back to the city that they used to live in these houses, but then I guess the mice ran out or something because they uh, the cats didn't have enough food there. So then he moved over to this other place. <laughs> he was very flexible, though. He was ready to go with them when they decided they were going to go back. We're going to have to leave you in the morning. What kind of people are you? She promised you'd stay here and bury me. You did. Come with us. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Come with us. Oh, yes, you must. We, we need you now. We, if, if people see you, then they must believe us. Where are you going? We're going to a city with, with thousands and thousands of people, young people. All the people, all the time. <laughs> How many uh, people? Is, is that more than my cat? Oh, more. Oh, much, much more. More than, oh, my, and all of them alive. Oh, let's... Is it a long journey? It's a journey. Yeah. Yeah, we lived in most of these houses, you know. But they became too small for us and ran out of mice, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I used to come fishing here, you know, but uh, somehow all the fish died oh, a long time ago now. Nothing sad in a dead fish. Uh, all young people, you say. Oh, uh, I don't even remember what, although, of course, the young people, yeah. They say this thing used to be called a road. Had to give bits of metal to use it. <laughs> I'll truck along with you. I didn't think he was going to make it because he was pretty uh, old, you know. <laughs> but first we have to have the confrontation between Michael York and and uh, Richard Jordan and the fight. I thought the fight scene was well done. And I'm sure they used some doubles, but uh, they were very effectively using both the main actors for a lot of that it, it to me looked quite well done and, and realistic and richard jordan uh was an excellent actor who died young from a brain tumor sad story about him but that's one of his first uh movies i think if not the first movie that he yeah i think so a great yeah. line in in that fight scene he he he's pretty much got logan on the ropes and he's got his gun po pointed at logan and he says now, I have to finish you. You are terminated, Runner. Yes. Man, I thought of the Terminator again. You are terminated. I also like the scene where they, uh, uh, Michael York uses the most decrepit-looking U.S. flag on a flagpole as a weapon. 
Remember that? He's swinging it around and knocking. Interesting choice. They had to have chosen that on purpose. He uses a, a flag pole flag on it as a weapon. Well, it shows that things have changed over those hundreds of years, and there's, there's very little left from the past. But anyway, uh, Michael York succeeds in uh, doing in Richard Jordan after quite a battle. And then they talk about what they're going to do next, and Jessica's uh, adamant that they have to continue on because there is sanctuary out there somewhere. And uh, Logan's like, there's not, there's not. You know, you have to get over this idea. There is no sanctuary. This is, this is it. So then they decide that they've got to head back to the city because... What are we promising him? He asked if we would bury him when his time comes. We can't. We're going back. Back? what i have to tell them the truth you won't be able to tell anybody anything you'll be killed the moment you're seen not when they've learned what we've learned they won't listen things don't change we can stay here together have a life as long as his together jessica things do change look you're lying you don't want to change anything. You want to go back oh, to Jessica, kill. Jessica, listen to Francis me. was right. Jessica, you Jessica, really... look, listen to me. The life clocks made me kill Francis. They kill people every every single day. If I don't go back and and, and try to stop that, destroy them, I I can't live here. I couldn't live anywhere. Don't don't you understand that? All I want is to be alive and with you. That's all. Do you think I want anything different now? He was very, very determined to do that, and, and so they, uh, they make that trek back and retrace their steps along uh, through, the, through the rubble and ruin and then the, uh, what used to be a highway. Yeah, I thought that was an old um, riverbed, but it was an old highway. And uh, they go through the various stages to get back inside the Dome City. And Peter Yusinov is able to succeed. But, uh, you know, that scene when they come up to the, where the water is cascading down into that pool and, yes. and Jessica yes. have to swim under the water to get back into the city. And, and the old man, obviously, he, he's not going to be able to, to do that, so he just waits outside. That was really beautiful cinematography. And... and Yes. The, the matte paintings that they use there. And I just wish that they could have used more of that type of uh, setup for the beginning of the movie. Because I could have watched uh, another hour of, of that. It, it made me think again of, I wonder what was going on behind the scenes during the making of the movie. Did they make some changes in the crew from the first part to the second part? Because it's so much better in the second half of the movie, just as you described. That fountain also reminded me of a beautiful fountain in Cincinnati, Ohio, right along the river. I don't know if that, I don't think that's where they filmed it, but there's one there that's really nice. This is a real fountain in, in Texas. In Texas? And, uh, apparently, like, nine people drowned in that pool because that pool was about 13 feet deep. And oh, my word. The exact spot where they dove into the water and... So they shut the fountain down for a number of years and re rebuilt it so that now the pool is only two feet deep. But it's a real place. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they get back inside the Dome City, 
or or the shopping mall it depends on your perspective <laughs> and it's it, it, coincidentally they get there just as carousel is about to begin again and so hundreds if not thousands of people are going young people are going to watch carousel and renewal they do their best to get them to change their mind no don't go in there you don't have to die well no one has to die at 30 you can live 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 and grow old i've seen it she's seen it well look 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 it's clear last day capricorn 29s year of the city 2274 carousel begins captured by some sand right right there we go taken up to the central computer room where logan is interrogated that was a well done scene this was one of my favorite scenes of the movie and it has a lot of uh feeling to me of the movie tron uh because in that movie tron the original one uh the the villain in that movie is the mcp the master control program and at the end of the movie they defeat the MCP and, and all the programs are freed. And it, at the end of this movie, they end up defeating the, the central computer, which causes a massive chain reaction, destroys the city, and you know it frees all of these people. And that interrogation scene with Logan and the computer asking him questions, you know, about sanctuary, was was really was really scary. I thought they. Surrogates are engaged. Logan 5, you were assigned to find a place called Sanctuary. Report. There is no sanctuary. Unacceptable. The answer does not program. You were assigned to locate missing runners. State what you found. All Frozen! The input does not program, Logan 5. You may not resist. An old man. You must not resist, Logan 5. Did you find sanctuary? Broke city seals and went outside. Confirm outside. All ruin exposed. There is no sanctuary. 
answer the question. Input contrary. Input contrary. 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 May not. May not. May not resist. May not resist. Logan five. Unacceptable. Un unacceptable. Unacceptable. Does not. questions and over and over again I wasn't sure that Logan was gonna survive that interrogation but because the question the answers don't compute uh, what the expected answers were the computer basically kind of like melts down and it was kind of a test of wills almost between the computer and Logan I was just gonna say then they begin to escape and he, he shoots the uh, he destroys the computer and uh, that causes a chain reaction, which begins to and is successful in uh, destroying the Dome City and freeing the young people. What did you think about that last scene with uh, the old man and all those? I thought that was pretty. I love that scene. I, I I just think that that was one of my favorite highlights of the of the film. And that young woman is touching Peter Ustinov's face, and they'd never seen anybody that looked like that. It was a very affirming ending. I really enjoyed that. And, and rather than the old man being scared of all these people and, and sort of being timid, he's he's quite happy and overjoyed to see all of them. Like he, Yes! He's been alone for so long that finally he gets to be with these other people. He was so relieved. I thought that was a really good conclusion to the, to the movie. Shall we talk about our ratings for this? So, overall, I, I think it's a mixed bag. I think there's some really, really well-done scenes. I thought Peter Ustinov did great. And I, th I thought uh, Mike, Richard Jordan and Michael York and Jenny Ogader all did you know, good jobs as well. Um, I thought the first half of the movie was just okay. Kind of a five for me. Some of it maybe even a four. But the second half of the movie was like eights and nines for me. So it was really hard to rate this one. Um, I felt like this movie had the bigger concept that we were kind of wishing for in Westworld and Andromeda Strain. So I, I really appreciated that. But it didn't come together as well as it did in Planet of the Apes. It just didn't. It just nowhere near reached that that height for me. So I'm gonna land on a seven. Uh, but again, it's a real mixed bag. Some of it a four. Some of it. Eights and nines. I echo your uh, comments uh, about the movie and the first and second half. Um, I gave it a six out of ten, and I, I wish I could have gone higher. I would love to see this movie done in the hands of a James Cameron or a Steven Spielberg. I think it cries out for a remake using today's technology and uh, and digital imaging. 
next episode in, in our next podcast, we're going to shift gears completely and we're going to review Mrs. Miniver from 1942, which won uh, six Academy Awards and one of those was Best Picture of 1942 with the lead cast of Greer Garson and Walter Pidgeon. A wonderful movie, again made by uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer at the very beginning of the war. I wanted to read a paragraph from the uh, from the write-up on the movie, which I think really summarizes it, because I love this movie. It goes, Kay Miniver doesn't fly a spitfire in dogfights over London or ply the North Sea in a battleship, but she's doing her all for wartime England, and she does it so well that Winston Churchill would say, Mrs. Miniver was more vital to the nation than a fleet of destroyers. Pretty high praise. Well, I, I tell you, I'm excited about this one because I did some reading on IMDb, and there's nothing but high praise for this movie on there. It's like all ten. <clears throat> to me, it's a perfect uh, movie done by William Wyler, who did a lot of excellent movies. And it's up there in my favorites from the war period of uh, the best years of our lives, which I think William Wyler also did, and 12 O'Clock High, which we reviewed uh, last year. So I'm looking forward to that. And then we need to talk... Well, we've got a couple after that we haven't really talked about, but one is The Professionals with Burt Lancaster and Lee Marvin, a Western from 1966. But the one I I think maybe we'd want to do before that is Virgin Spring. By Ingemar Bergman, a, a Swedish film from I think 1960. Let's do that because that that's really piqued my interest. Uh, I really enjoy his movies, and I think it would be an interesting kind of uh, again shifting gears. But we should definitely do the professionals. And then I was thinking, what if we did a double feature of the Magnificent Seven and the Seven Samurai, and kind of compare? Oh, that'd be great, like we did with uh, the. Uh... 310 to Yuma. Yeah, because watching Yul Brenner in Westworld really made me want to watch uh, The Magnificent Seven. So we'll summarize here. We're going to do Mrs. Miniver next, followed by Virgin Spring, and then The Professionals, and then a double feature of The Magnificent Seven and Seven Samurai. That'll get us through May, pretty much. Yeah, that'll be fun. That'll be good. Well, for now, this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing you happy movie watching. And and this is Matt Johnson. Uh, again, thanks for listening. You can find us on ClassicMovieReviews.net. And until next week, have a great week of movie watching.
wanted, I, I meant to talk a little bit more. Um, maybe we can throw this in in the after show, but, uh, you know, there's a, a thing called the MGM Purge that happened right around the time of this movie coming out. I think after, it was after this movie, but it was not long after. And apparently there were a whole bunch of other scenes in this movie that were lost in that purge because uh, the studio heads were either selling off as much stuff as they could to pay off their debt or just dis outright destroying things. And it's, it's, it's a real shame that that happened because I, I bet there was a lot of cool stuff that could have been salvaged. I think that whole period from like the late 60s to the 70s was very sad for MGM because they sold off their lot, all the back lot stuff. I think they sold almost all their film libraries to, I believe, Warner Brothers. They were looking for any way to get money because they, you know, for for the studio that was so successful in the 1930s and 40s, the golden age of movies, they sure hit rock bottom. And those scenes of the decrepit, like rundown city, and the at the end of the movie, that was actually the MGM backlot that they were filming on. It was that it was that rundown in real life. Oh my goodness! Yeah, uh, that's too bad. I just thought it was a shame that that uh, I bet a lot of film history was lost during that purge. It makes me want to read some of the history of that time because I I remember you know I remember it, but I really didn't pay a lot of attention to it at the time. And now they're back. I think MGM and United Artists are back as only a. Uh, distribution company. I don't think they sold everything, but they sure unloaded a lot of stuff because like Mrs. Miniver is is uh, released by Warner Brothers. But the DVD, movie. but it was an MGM movie, yeah. Huh. So, and I know a lot of Turner Classic Movies uh their library is made up of a lot of MGM films that Warner Brothers had and they're now Warner Brothers now part of uh, Time Life, which is Turner Classic Movies. But anyway, uh, I'm going to read some more about that. It was a it was a fun visit. I, again, I, I I got so wrapped up in this. I maybe I had too much coffee this morning. I was just ready to go. Blah, 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 blah. 